Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the show. Our show. Our show. This show. This show. This show. Yes. Not one of those other shows. No. This one. This one. You can tell the difference. This one has us on it. Yes. Other ones may be professional. <laughs> yes. <laughs> other ones may be recorded on professional equipment with people who have voices that sound like they are proper radio hosts, mm. not two northern ninnies. Lots of planets have a north. Indeed they do. We're going to do some emails, we're not going to do as many tonight because I suspect tonight will be a long show. Could be. So we're trying to keep that to a manageable, editable length. So we don't spend 48 years editing. So, uh, we're still in December with the emails. So we're still in 2013 with these emails. Mm. So hopefully we'll, we'll blitz through these and, and be into this year before we carry on. Our first email is from Professor Allen again. Hello. 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 It says, your sweet Christmas episode Luke Cage reference. Yeah. We like that, don't we? We, we like a bit of Luke Cage. I'm sure we had Luke Cage. Yeah. Yeah. It fits. It does. It's all. It's 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 like we plan it. It's like the email responds to what we talk about, which kind of implies yeah. that people listen to us. Which I don't know about you, but I'm not used to. <laughs> quite frankly, I'm used to you lot not listening to me. What? Exactly. Have you seen you not listening to us? <laughs> you well, I don't listen to the kids. What would I want to do that for? Uh, the email begins, Leyland Blokes. You probably knew this, or maybe it's just what the American meaning of the word is. But, as you can see from Dictionary.com, Stiletto is actually a pretty good name for a villain. No, it isn't, dude. <laughs> Definition number one, a small dagger with a slender tapered blade. Definition number two, a sharply pointed tool used to make holes in leather, cloth, etc. 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 As Yul Brynner once said. Etc. Etc. As Morrissey once said. Definition number three, also called a spike heel stiletto heel, a very high heel on a woman's shoe, tapering to a very narrow tip. Although I did run across a female character named Stiletta in Hex issue one, and I thought that was a bit much, as it seemed to be her actual given name. Tears, Professor Allen, the host of the Quarter Bin podcast, co-host of the Shot Box Showcase. Yeah, we knew all of that. I knew it was a dagger. I just thought it was much more fun to take the mick out of the fact that he was named after a woman's shoe. Yeah. I thought that was just eminently more mockable, quite frankly. I think a couple of people did mention that it is a dagger. Stiletto's a very good name for a villain. I'm sorry, I'm not having it. I think it's a silly name. Because whenever you say stiletto, stilettos over here have a completely different meaning, don't they? Mm. If you see some woman tottering on stilettos, it normally conjures up images of Essex girls, doesn't it? Uh, only way is Essex or Geordie Shore or whatever those crappy shows are I, called. I just tend not to think about those, really. Do you? Do you not? Do you not pay a lot of attention to the Only Way Is Essex? I see that I do. Do you not? No. I'm I'm addicted to it. I, I watch it all the time. 
Actually, no, I don't. I knew something was going on. <laughs> I don't. I can't stand it. Uh, but that's what it conjures up over here. So the fact that he was called Stiletto just basically meant we mocked him mercilessly, quite frankly. Because let's be honest, Spider-Man would have done that. Yeah. And I lived my entire life under the mantra of what would Spider-Man do? <laughs> and he would mock somebody called Stiletto. He, he would, yeah. <laughs> Our next email is from the Keith 902 which I believe is Christopher Keith. Uh, Silver Edge Showdown Parts 1 and Part 2 Hello Leylands, hello Chris In my effort to catch up with your show and catch up on the oldies, goodies goodies, not oldies I have been listening to a lot of Hey Kids I know what you're thinking, an overdose of podcasts from the UK could have an adverse effect on someone from Texas And you're right (laughs) (laughs) Well technically I nicked I know what you're thinking and you're right from an American television show, so that's not affected him, but he does say I know what you're thinking and you're right not only your show, now I'm watching Sherlock, awesome show by the way, but bullshit that I have to wait until January 19th to see the third series in the States. How does someone from America subscribe to BBC? Maybe I'll just hang out in English type pubs, turn the football game to BBC One and see who the first person to break a bottle over my head. <laughs> Excellent, good. Yeah, you'll have to let me know how that barber all works out. Uh, yeah, we've seen uh, all the Sherlock by now. And if you're only getting it on January the 19th, as of this recording, you've not seen any of them. No. Oh, we could totally spoil it. We could. But we're not going to. I mean, who'd have thought that they'd kill Sherlock off again? In every episode. (laughs) Who'd have thought every single episode of those three would end with Sherlock dying? He's like the Joker. (laughs) Dies in never an explanation in the next episode. Are we still alive? No, there isn't. That got a bit annoying. Chris continues, eagerly awaiting the Doctor Who Christmas special, which obviously we've already had. I'm watching Broadchurch and Luther. What next? I'll tell you what's next. Seeing if my overly talented wife can make me a ridiculously long Tom Baker scarf. I never had one of them. I never had a ridiculously long Tom Baker scarf. You think I would do? Broadchurch was great. I've never watched Luther. Isn't that I understood it's good. Stack of Pentecost in. You Luther, Luther, it. Lu- I thought you were on about Broadchurch. No. I'm sat there going, well, David Tennant's in it, and Rory's in it, and uh, Olivia Coleman's in it, and David Bradley's in it, but I don't remember thinking of Pentecost. Oh, yes, Idris Elba. Yeah. Yes, Idris right. Elba is Luthor. Mr. Luthor. But he doesn't have a Jaeger in it. He, he doesn't. That would make it much more It would make Luthor a much more entertaining show, would it? Okay. Uh, Chris continues, I'm caught up through the first two Silver Age issues. I will have to call shenanigans, however, on your DC selections. Why, you ask? The first two issues were at least close in the release date. However, episode part two, ten years difference is a bit much to consider it a like comparison. I know that these books were selected from those that you own, but the second appearance of Green Lantern with a multi-part Thor issue, not a fair comparison. Although, let's be honest, Green Lantern was likely forgettable until O'Neill and Adams. A ten-year gap that means you were getting almost Bronze Age books to compare them to brand new Silver Age DC. Enough complaining. Uh, I kind of agree with you a little bit, but like you say, we were limited by what we actually have in our collection. Mm. And uh, I didn't want to touch on Neil Adams' Green Lantern, because we may touch upon that if we do the same thing for the 70s. Yeah. Showcase number four. I'm actually reading these issues right now and listening to Tom vs. the Flash podcast for a 10 minute episode recap. These books are goofy. Two points though. It was established that Barry apparently knew the exact placement of the chemicals. It may have been a retcon for Mark Wade, but I seem to recall it was the same in the Silver Age because he set the chemicals up in the exact manner that Wally was struck by lightning and became Kid Flash. I found it particularly amusing that someone would relate a story about the Flash and feel the need to recreate the experiment ever. Better yet, maybe move the chemical shelf away from the window. Same chemicals, same window. Uh, mm, I don't know how I feel about that. If he knew what the chemicals were, yeah. and he arranged this show and tell for Wally West, 
What are the well? What are the odds that lightning would strike twice for yeah. a start? But wasn't it retconned at some point that Barry Allen went back in time and caused the accident that turned him into the Flash? Did wasn't it? wasn't that a secret origin? And I just thought that was dopey as hell. Yeah. I'm, what's wrong with it just being an accident? But then he'd have to go back in time to give him the powers to go back in time to give him the powers. Yeah, it's, I, I didn't. I thought that was dope. Number two, the costume. Yeah, it's silly and ridiculous, but cool to see it pop out the ring. I will have no dissing on Barry Allen's ring. Okay. I thought you were going to go for the obvious gag there, but no, you refrained. No, I like the ring. <laughs> and I like the, the costume coming out of the ring. I love that. I think that's really cool. No amount of effort could cram that costume back in the ring. If you thought the pocket in Superman's cape was silly, the ring, uh, the 50s. Oh, but Chris, so what? It's cool, isn't it? The Flash ring is awesome. Avengers 4, you guys said it best. This book is one of the legendary because of what changed in the Marvel Universe and not necessarily how it happened. The Asparagus people, by the way, are the Debari. They were the alien race that Jean Grey annihilated when she ate up the sun in the Dark Phoenix saga. Oh, right. Yeah, I remember that. She kills the planet of Asparagus people. I yeah. didn't know they were the same race, then. It's funny that this rescue of Cap was never brought to Namor's attention until the 80s in an issue of The Avengers, 262, I think, when Namor finally joined. Up to that point, he had no idea that anyone was in the block of ice. Thank you, Roger Stern, for tying it all together. Well, Roger Stern was good at stuff like that. And he always made it make sense, as well. The first episode was a fair approximation, as DC and Marvel were still similar in the early 60s. For all of Stan's talk in later years about building character and real-life problems, that only applied to Spider-Man, the FF, and the individual books. The Avengers were just a Justice League-type book for a while, I would argue, until Cap's kooky quartet, and certainly when Hank Pym rejoined the team. Showcase issue 22. Mm, yeah, no way to make the yellow weakness not seem silly. And tank top Green Lantern uniform just looks like the Cincinnati Reds baseball journeys from the 60s. <laughs> I wouldn't know. And with Green Lantern, there's no way to find a good comparison to Thor until you get into the early 70s, so this one is just as good as another. But you just told us off <laughs> for comparing those two, and now you're saying that was okay. Thor 157, Mangog in yellow. This was a good idea. Yeah, I've made fun of George Perez for years for his costume designs. Move over, George. Jack Kirby needs his first year of ridicule here. At least Mangog didn't have skis and poles, however. <laughs> nothing wrong. I was just going to like the black race. I think that's. I mean, he's he's only trying to duplicate the success of Silver Surfer. Let's be honest. Yeah. But it's still all right, and uh, it's still pretty cool. The JG Jones fixed it in Final Crisis. How can you fix Kirby? Um, well, he got rid of the skis and the poles. Well, then he's not the Black Racer anymore. He still has the skis. That's like the Silver Surfer not having his board anymore. Alright, well, he still has the skis, but he doesn't have the sticks. Right. Slightly different skis. Alright, whatever. Fair enough. If you compare, which isn't fair, this story with the Midgard Serpent story from Simonson's run, you'll see how to properly introduce a seemingly insurmountable obstacle for Thor. I never believed Mangog was a threat. I still just look at this character and laugh, looking at a picture as I'm typing this and giggling. He looks like a goat man. No one's scared of a goat man. I think I'd be scared of a goat man. I thought Mangog was brilliant. I'm more scared of Goat Boy, to be honest. Oh, you're more scared of Goat Boy. Goat Boy. <laughs> um, I thought Mangog was great, but I only saw him in black and white. I do agree that in colour he looks a little silly. Mm. But in black and white he looks absolutely fantastic. Alright, that's enough for now. Wraps up Chris. I'm eagerly looking forward to part three and four of the Silver Age, and I at least promise to attempt to read the Batman books that you select with an open mind. Thanks for yet another year of excellence as this email will reach you in the week of Christmas 2013. Uh, thanks for a start to the new year. Excellent, thanks. Thanks, Chris Keith. That's very good. P.S. My son woke up the other morning and grabbed an iPad to presumably watch cartoons. I come into his room dreading that he's watching Game of Thrones and he's scarred for life by nudity and torture at the tender age of four. 
Nope, he's safe for another week. What's he watching? Classic Doctor Who. Tom Baker. And while he doesn't know Tom's name quite yet, he's referring to him as the Scarf Guy when we watch The Day of the Doctor. At this rate, he'll be more familiar with Baker than me. I need to get in gear. Nothing wrong with your child loving the magnificence that is Tom. Everyone should be brought up loving Tom. For Tom is awesome. Isn't he? Mm-hmm. Uh, Silver Age and Cold War is from Bobby Coakley. Hey, Leyland, while your look at the Silver Age of comics was great, thank you very much, you missed an important part of that era, the Cold War. DC Comics avoided most of the Cold War, but Marvel Comics linked it to the origins of their heroes, the Fantastic Four, Iron Man, the Hulk, even Ant-Man. Hank Pym's first wife was killed for defecting to the West. In the first issue of Amazing Spider-Man, the chameleon was a Soviet spy. The Vanisher stole defence plans to sell to communists. In the second issue of the X-Men, Thor fought communists a few times, even in Vietnam, in Journey into Mystery number 117. I, I love Stan Lee when he's, when he's doing stuff about the Cold War. <laughs> God, he's a bad guy. He must be with the Reds. Well... I don't think it's a case, Bobby, that we missed an important part of the era. We have discussed the Cold War influence on comics before, have we not? But I just don't think it came up in those comics. Yeah. The Silver Surfer one was more about bigotry mm-hmm. than it was about um, the Cold War or communism. The Amazing Spider-Man one, that didn't even come up at all. It, was, it wasn't relevant to that one. Thor was just a balls-out actioner. There's a little bit of it in the Avengers. It's the, the secret guy who wasn't what you thought he was right. who turned out to be the asparagus man I suppose we could have linked that to the reds under the bed skirt thing that the enemy could is us and all that stuff but yeah. we didn't bother because we were too busy mocking <laughs> the plot asparagus people <laughs> yes so I don't think it's that we missed it I think it's more a case it didn't really crop up in those particular issues certainly we've mentioned it a lot on Fantastic Cast if you want to pop over there and listen to some of them uh, Bobby continues in the Sons of Origins collection Stan Lee said how public opinion about Vietnam changed over time which Marvel reflected in its books by the late 1960s Marvel had dropped the Soviets in exchange for Hydra AIM and the Secret Empire the Cold War itself ended in 1991 and retcons were added example John Byrne redid Iron Man's origin so Wong Chu was working for the Mandarin instead of the North Vietnamese only recently the Winter Soldier was shown in flashbacks doing dastardly deeds for the Kremlin during the Cold War odd for a Soviet supervillain to be introduced in 2006 but there you go keep up the good work Bobby Copley thank you very much uh, Luke's email Luke Giaconetti obviously we have to have a Luke email it's not a show without a Luke email Merry sweet Christmas to all and to all a good fight I like that I like his I like the second Luke Cage reference of the day yeah well, it was a Luke Cage show, it wasn't was, it? Yeah. We, we covered a Luke Cage issue. Andy Claus and Chief Elf Michael. <laughs> At least I'm a Chief Elf. Yes, yes. Well, you're the boss of the elves, obviously, and you're taller than me. So. Well, yes, yeah, so why, why aren't I? Well, you, so, can, you can be Michael Claus. I, uh, I'm not thinking I've got the bills to say. Uh, see, so there you go. Luke starts, Power Man and Iron Fist, issue 50. Oh, yeah! The issue was a follow-up to three-issue epic storyline which brought Luke together with Danny, Misty and Colleen as they tracked down the Bushmaster, first individually and then together. This is the start of a great run of stories, including Clermont crossing the bows over with the X-Men a few issues down the road. I have read nearly all of this series and it is fantastically fun Marvel Bronze Age stuff. The run of Hero to Hire to Power Man to Power Man and Iron Fist remains one of my favourite comic series of all time. By the way, I agree with Andy that the title Hero for Hire is better than Power Man. 
One Man. However, the title change did lead to one of my all-time favourite comics, Power Man issue 21, featuring Power Man Luke Cage fighting Power Man Eric Justin, a.k.a. the Master of Evil Goliath and the Thunderbolt Atlas. Just a fabulous near-issue-length battle between two powerhouses. Right, I may have to investigate that one. I read the first year of Power Man, just because I felt like reading some Luke Cage, and I really did enjoy it. I need to get back to that. I disagree with you about Stiletto and Discus. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't know in your heart of hearts. You don't, really. They started out as being out for revenge against Cage because his escape from Seagate prison essentially ruined their father's career. The father didn't share their enthusiasm for revenge, though, and helped Luke take them down. So this move for them is still motivated by revenge, more so than any real dedication to law and order. Stiletto as woman's shoe never really entered my mind. I always associated it with the knife, since his earlier appearances he used multiple trick knives unseen in the issue. Having thrown the discus in high school, I rather like discus as a goon henchman villain, I always wanted to break these guys out for a Marvel role-playing game session. Both of them ended up working for Justin Hammer over in Iron Man as well. Well, alright then, I think we're just going to have to be culturally divided on that. Because the the stiletto heel on a woman has become slightly derogatory, hasn't it? It is kind of a reference to a certain type of woman and how they dress. And so obviously our, our first inkling on hearing stiletto was to go to that. Whereas that's the second person who's emailed and said, no, it's a knife, it's a good name for a villain. Honest. Honest. And we're just going, no, it isn't. <laughs> so I think that's a cultural divide. So we'll, we'll just have to let that go. None of that motivation, Luke, came through in the issue, though, did it? No. As stated in that issue, they were essentially the Hardcastle and McCormick of comic books. You remember Hardcastle and McCormick? No. No, he was before you were born. Milton C. Hardcastle was a retired judge from the Los Angeles Superior Court. Right. Mark McCormick, an ex-race car driver turned thief, was Hardcastle's last case. McCormick was placed in the judge's custody and together Hardcastle and McCormick are going after more than 200 cases that escaped from Hardcastle's justice on a technicality. That was the premise of the show. Okay. I can't believe I just remember the opening log line from Hardcastle and McCormick from memory. <laughs> That is deeply sad. No, no, I can believe that. <laughs> anyway, so Stiletto and Discus were Hardcastle and McCormick. Okay. That was the premise that we were given in that issue. We knew none of that backstory, and none of that was given in the story. We, we were told that his the dad worked in Yes, the we were told that the dad worked in the prison that Luke Cage let go, but that wasn't given as the motivation for yeah. doing what they were doing in that issue. And we were only going off that issue. So none of the, inf- the backstory information was there, and obviously I don't actually think any of it's relevant for that issue. We still enjoyed it, yeah. but it does make them come across as a bit more bumbling and idiotic than perhaps that revenge motif does. Mm. But like I say, that wasn't in the story that we read. So. Uh, forget using a laser instead of a bullet, continues Luke. A properly thrown discus can kill you very easily. True story, while at the track meet where my brother and I were competing, a couple of guys were screwing around and throwing a discus in a spectator area. The discus hit my mother in the, an- in the ankle, sorry, and it was nearly broken. As it was, she suffered a fairly serious injury. An Olympic men's discus is 4.4 pounds, 2 kilograms, and is constructed in such a way that the majority of the weight is on the outer rim. This helps the discus to spin when thrown and fly further. As such, a powerfully, thro- a powerfully thrown discus possesses a huge amount of kinetic energy and can break bones and cause other injuries rather easily. Given Discus's actuary with the implements seen here as he cuts a phone receiver in half with one, he makes for a legitimate threat in my book. Costume is another matter. Alright, we'll give you the Discus. Especially if he razor edges them. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Alright, we're not having the stiletto thing, but we'll give you the Discus thing. Alright. 
Fur? Is that fur? Yeah. I think that's fur. One off. Yeah. One off. What? The Watcher. Hmm. I'm not going to get into Uatu, loseriest of an entire race of losers, The Watcher, lest I start to rant about this giant four-headed goofball. But I dug the coverage as I've not read the issue. Thanks for the fun show, and I hope you guys had a great Christmas. We had a fantastic Christmas. Thank you, Luke. Hopefully the same went for you and your family. Right, we'll knock it on the head, though. We won't go into, we've only got one email left from 2013, but I suspect this week's going to be a long show. Yeah. So we will knock it on the head. We will plug a show. Lots of people I've been listening to recently actually say, this trailer is for this show. And they talk about the trailers. I never know what the trailer's going to be till I edit the show. Yeah. So, so I can't do that. I'm obviously not as organised as those people. Some would say as professional, mean, cruel people would, would pick on me for that. Anyway, we'll be back in a minute. I'm rambling. We'll be right back with Dreadful Birthday, Dear Joker, Part 1. It's a party and you're invited. I'm Tim Galloway, your host and keeper of the Mouse Castle Lounge. Your weekly dose of news, commentary, and interviews from the world of Disney, served up with your favorite tasty beverage. Drop by and see us at themousecastle.com, or just look for the Mouse Castle on Facebook. It's good times and great conversations about the house that Mickey built. By the way, did you know that Walt Disney's favorite drink was a Scotch Mist? I'm more of a martini man myself. We'll see you soon at the Mouse Castle Lounge. Don't bother. Your life won't be worth spit! I've been dead once already. It's very liberating. You should think of it as, uh, therapy. <laughs> Jack, listen. Maybe we can cut a deal. Jack? Jack is dead, my friend. You can call me Joker. And as you can see, I'm a lot happier. <laughs> He's known by many names. The Ace of Knaves. The Mountebank of Mirth. The Harlequin of Hate. The Clown Prince of Crime. Yet his real name remains a mystery. If he can stack the deck against you, he surely will. But if it's worth doing... It's worth doing with a smile. With his chalk white skin, ruby red lips and his shock of emerald green hair, he has cheated death more times than can be counted. Clad in his purple suit, green shirt and waistcoat, he cuts a dashing figure, but he's not to be trifled with. His personality ranges from merciless, cold-blooded killer to harmless prankster, and he can switch between either on a whim. He has no superpowers, save his incredible intellect and decent chemistry skills, and no weaponry to speak of, unless one counts his squirt of flour filled with acid. And yet, this comical-looking man has risen through the ranks of the comic book hierarchy to become, arguably the best, certainly the most famous comic book rogue ever. The Joker. Perhaps appropriately... The Joker's real-life origins are as shrouded in mystery as his comic book counterpart. Bob Kane's assistant, Jerry Robinson, claims credit for creating the Joker, saying he got the idea, quite naturally, from a playing card. Bob Kane disagrees, insisting that he and writer Bill Finger had already come up with the character, based in part upon the 1928 movie The Man Who Laughs. Whatever the case, the Joker is one of those characters like Superman, Batman and Dick Tracy who has transcended his pulp origins to become a character known by comics and non-comics readers alike. 
He appeared for the very first time in Batman issue 1, cover dated simply Spring 1940. This untitled tale was the character's first appearance in the first of four stories in that issue. Feeling he was a hit, the creators brought the character back almost straight away in the fourth tale in that same issue. Waiting for reader feedback is for lesser beings, apparently, although the real reason is far less facetious. Apparently stories were switched around at the last minute, and this second tale was originally planned for Detective Comics. The Joker started out as a very dark character, killing with impunity. It was at first unclear if the green hair, white face and perma-grin were affectations or really what he looks like, and as was par for the course at the time, no origin for the character was given. It would be 11 years before readers would learn the true story of the Joker, and even here, the only other name given for the man himself was the Red Hood. And thus it has remained, mostly, ever since. The 1966 Batman TV series starring Cesar Romero as the Joker never bothered with an origin story. The 1990s TV animated series in which Mark Hamill took on the role never bothered with an origin story. Even The Dark Knight, written by a man not known for his subtlety, David Goya, realised that the Joker, this time portrayed by Heath Ledger, was better if his character was shrouded in secrecy. Only Tim Burton's 1989 movie Batman, which featured a tour de force performance from Jack Nicholson in the part, felt that they had to give the Joker not only an origin, but a real name. Thankfully, despite a few minor aberrations we will be discussing later, this was not followed up in the comics at all. So, to celebrate the mirthful Mountbatten's birthday, his 74th, a birthday month he shares with Robin, we have decided to dedicate a series of shows to the man who laughs. Unlike our Superman coverage, we will not be celebrating different eras of the character in each episode. Rather, we will be looking at stories we consider highlights in his criminal career. Stories that count, mean something, or are just favourites of ours. And to start with, we thought we would look at the many first appearances of the character over the years. Like Batman, the Joker has had his beginnings retold many times, many ways. It's quite funny that we're, we're doing this big celebration type thing on his 74th birthday. You don't usually have a big deal on... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glossing over that. <laughs> I'm glossing over... All right, we have mentioned this on the show before. I thought Batman number one came out at the very, very end of 1939, and therefore this was the Joker's 75th birthday as well. And it isn't. And it didn't. Yes. But I wanted to do it anyway. And it's still his birthday. Just a different one? Yeah, and besides... I kind of think the Joker would like the perverse nature of celebrating his 74th rather than his 75th. I think he'd approve, don't you? And let's be honest, I don't want to fall on the floor now, die in laughing, and then end up with a big grin on my face. So we're doing it. (laughs) Accept it, move on. For the Batman, this has involved his first story, The Case of the Chemical Syndicate, been retold over the years, from its original appearance in Detective Comics issue 27 in 1938, to Detective Comics issue 387 in 1969, and twice in Detective issue 627 from 1991, and more recently again, back in Detective Comics issue 27 as part of Batman's 75th birthday. For the Joker, this involves covering his first appearance from Batman issue 1, the post-crisis retelling from Legends of the Dark Knight issue 50, and the graphic novel reimagining from The Man Who Laughs. So, first on the docket, Batman issue 1 from Spring 1940. 
This untitled story, later rechristened Batman vs. the Joker in the greatest Joker stories ever told trade, but simply called The Joker in the Dark Knight Archives, was written by Bill Finger with pencils by Bob Kane and inks by Kane and Jerry Robinson. Because I am so fur it's untrue, I suggest the creation of The Joker be credited to all three men. Mm. What's wrong with The Joker created by Bill Finger, Bob Kane and Jerry Robinson? Okay. I have no problem with that. It's Bob Kane though. He probably didn't create it, but noticed it sold and thought, hey, yeah, it was me, Defo. <laughs> Businessman Bob Kane. Hey, business see, I, I don't understand this. I don't get this. Bob Kane was smart enough yeah. to work himself out a deal that was mutually beneficial for him and national publications, right? Yeah. So why is Bob Kane always lampooned for having the foresight to do this? Because he knew that it was going to be successful. Siegel and Schuster did not Superman. He didn't. He didn't have any more of a clue this was going to be successful than Siegel and Schuster did with Superman. The whole reason he did not... it was because Superman was successful, so the, the clothing yeah, yeah, a I, different I came. agree entirely. The only reason Batman exists is because of the success of Superman. But Bob Kane could not possibly have known that 75 years later, Batman would be what he is today. Just like Siegel and Schuster could not have known that Superman would be what he is today. Yeah. Neither party could know that. But it seems to me that Bob Kane gets an awful lot of bad press for having the smarts to do what Siegel and Schuster should have done. And I don't I don't see why that's accepted. Were they not smarter by taking as much money as they could at the time rather than see? waiting for it to be successful? And see? So at the time that they took that money, that was probably the best deal for them at that time. Whereas Bob Kane was smart enough to get a lawyer to work all this out properly. Now, you can argue till you're blue in the face that the Batman that we now know isn't actually a Bob Kane creation yeah. but it was, we're not talking about that that's a completely different argument what we're talking about is that Bob Kane seems to get spat upon for having the intelligence to work out a deal with National that saw his name on every Batman comic whether he created or not till the early 60s and even after that are created by credit and per- money in perpetuity yeah. and Siegel and Schuster didn't do that I just sold it outright, but national publications are in some way the bad guy for paying for a property outright and then owning it themselves. Mm. But Bob Kane is also a bad guy for being smart enough to get all this sorted so out. So why is Bill Finger also accredited if they co-created it? Uh, I don't disagree with you, but that's not what I'm talking about. I am not talking about who created Batman. Right. I am talking about the... De- Bob Kane seems to get spat upon for having the smarts to do what Siegel and Schuster didn't do having the intelligence to get a lawyer involved and when he sold it to Marvel or to Marvel to national publications that then became DC for saying yeah I want a cut of the money and I want my name as the creator on everything do you see the point I'm making? I do but even then I still don't see why he should say that he wants a creator on everything when Bill Finger doesn't because he, he didn't create a lot of it. No, I'm, I'm not arguing that point with you. So he's going and getting a lot of money, getting all that credit for something he only half did. Yeah. Who's the smart one? Oh, okay. Hey. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. We're reading this in Dark Knight Archives Volume One, which I picked up in Florida for ten dollars. So I ended up buying about nine of them. <laughs> Dropped a lot of money on archives. Yeah. Because they were so cheap. It's a lovely volume. I love the paper in it. I love the presentation of it. I think it's brilliant. Uh, brilliant. The cover by Kane and Robinson is a symbolic piece of Batman and Robin swinging through the night. A night that has a bright yellow sky. <laughs> 
it's quite simple, as Kane's art was at this time, but it's rightly become a defining image of the Dark Knight and his young child. That's on T-shirts and posters and everywhere like that, isn't it? Mm. It's good. It's, it does its job, and it's a number one issue. Well, I know you probably think Kane's art is a little bit simplistic, and you're not wrong. I, I like Bob Kane's artwork. I want to know why Robin's got a green cape. Yeah. On that colour. it'll come, it'll blend in with the Do you know what, though? Yeah. It looks better. Yeah. The green kit with the green shorts and the green trunks and the green pants and the green gloves and then the Robin Redbreast looks better than the yellow cap. Does that look the yellow cape? Well, maybe that's just years of conditioning. I don't know. Could be. Could be. A nighttime radio broadcast is interrupted by an ominous message. At midnight, Henry Claridge will be killed and the famous Claridge diamond stolen. Initially dismissed as a prank, Claridge calls in the police and despite an impressive police escort, Claridge dies as the clock chimes midnight. As his corpse cools on the floor, his facial muscles contract, giving his face a repellent rictus grin. The calling card of the Joker. With the Claridge diamond already in his possession, the Joker apparently poisoned Claridge the night before with a slow-acting poison, and he plots his next crime, which will be even more daring. At midnight tonight, another radio broadcast intones, Jay Wilde will be killed, and the Ronker's Ruby stolen. Why does that sound like something Scooby-Doo would say? Ronker's Ruby! Sure enough, at midnight, the Joker gasses Wilde's police escort and kills Wilde, leaving with the ruby. The mob, not happy their rackets have been ruined, decides to declare war on the Joker, and Brute Nelson gets the word out that he's the man for the gig. The Batman, hearing of this on the underworld grapevine, decides that this may be a good opportunity to trap the Joker, and speeds over to Nelson's house. However, Nelson's men intercept the Batman, and this distraction gives the Joker a chance to murder Nelson the old-fashioned way, with lead. The Batman pursues the Joker, Nelson's men being no match for him, but the Joker manages to get a few good punches in, knocking the Batman into the drink. The next night, another message. Judge Drake once sent the Joker to prison, so tonight Drake must die. The Batman, hearing this message, declares something has to be done. Over at Drake's house, the Chief of Police and Drake play cards, but the Chief is really the Joker in disguise, and a shot of Joker venom kills Drake dead. Robin, meanwhile, is outside and follows the disguised Joker to his lure as Batman inspects the crime scene. Robin is spotted by the Joker and about to be injected with Joker Venom when Batman, who trailed them both, arrives. Joker manages to spray the Batman with Venom and knocking over a lamp as he goes departs the scene. As the fire starts, the Batman shakes off the Venom effects, rescues Robin, and they pursue the Joker who Robin heard say he was going after next after the Cleopatra necklace owned by Otto Drexel. As the fire starts, the Batman shakes off the Venom effects, rescues Robin, and they pursue the Joker, who Robin heard say was going after the Cleopatra necklace owned by Otto Drexel. The dynamic duo reach the penthouse apartment of Drexel and stop the Joker before he can begin. The fight concludes with the Joker being knocked off the roof and plummeting to his death, but the Batman catches him with a silken batline and drops him off in prison. Bit of a low-key ending, that one, wasn't it? Mm. For this particular story. Uh, the opening of the story is... It's kind of a splash page of the Joker looking over his shoulder at us, which would be reworked for the cover of The Man Who Laughs. Oh, yeah. he's a bit closer up, but it's the same thing. And he doesn't look as doper. Well, on The Man Who Laughs. Yeah. He, he looks old and wrinkly, though. But so. he, he looks pretty 
dopey on the Yeah, he does look pretty dopey on the Bob Kane when he's holding three cards, one with Batman on, one with Robin on, and one with the Joker in it. I want to know where he got those playing cards. I've only ever had one set of playing cards that had Batman and the Joker in it, and that was a set of 1989 movie yeah. playing cards. Do I still have them? You, I think you do, yeah. I damned if I know where they are. They're in one of those drawers in the kitchen. Are they? Because yeah. they were awesome Batman playing cards. Mm. I quite like that. I say it's kind of a splash page because there are two panels at the bottom of it that actually start the story off with a, a true sign of the time. The entire family, in this case it's only an elderly couple, but, you know, sits around the radio for an evening's entertainment. No FaceTime, dudes. No. Plot exposition is a little clumsy on panel one of page two. But I did like that the gentleman makes a gag at the expense of the recent awesome Wells War of the Worlds broadcast. Talking that this is just, oh, it's just a giant hoax. Nobody's going to die at midnight. Oh, don't be silly. But he feels stupid now. Well. Doesn't he? I, I, I don't know if he's that's sat there smoking your pipe. I don't think he really cares. <laughs> it's not him who's going to die. Well, yeah, so he's, see. So he's not bothered. He doesn't care whether he's right or wrong. Uh, I did love the police's method of protection was basically just form a ring of rosy circle <laughs> around the victim and pray for the best, wasn't it? Yeah, they all just stand around and glare and point. <laughs> you are going to die! <laughs> Take this one. Yeah, I like that. I thought that was very effective policing. Yeah, it seemed Ring a ring of roses. It didn't work, no. <laughs> a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. Uh, the first appearance of Joker Venom, the killing method used by the Joker that causes people to literally die laughing before their faces constrict into a mirthless grin. A quite grisly death. I thought it was handled quite well by the, the artist in this. His face doesn't turn white in this opening story, mm. which will be a symptom of Joker Venom in future stories. The face will turn white as well as having the rictus grin. Obviously, that's not something that they've thought about at this point. Page three is also another first that would stick with the character, the leaving behind of a playing card at the scene of the crime, burring what else? A Joker. Which makes perfect sense. I like on the bottom left panel of that, it just looks so normal. Yeah, well, wasn't that the, the thinking behind him? Is the, the white face and the, the red lips and the green hair, is it real or is it just a makeup? Mm. But obviously later on we, we learn that it's, uh, it's all real. The Joker has a scene where he tells us the plot and how he did what he did, apparently injected with Claridge with a poison that takes 24 hours to act at midnight last night. How he did this is left unexplained, as is exactly how he stole the diamond, suffice to say, he's the Joker. The trick was so successful, he repeats it the following night. However, Robin asks Batman if they're going to act, and Batman says, the time is not yet right. So the Joker killing a bloke, Mm. Batman's not asked about that, is he not? Yeah, I'd noticed that. Batman's just... uh, it's only one guy, Robin, and there's something on the radio I want to listen to or tonight. the world is on Yeah, and I can't set a recorder for it because nobody's invented one yet. So we'll <laughs> so stay no in tonight. FaceTime, man. Yeah, yeah. So invented it. And we'll stay in tonight and we'll listen to this radio broadcast. We'll and go then, after him tomorrow. Then tomorrow, he, he, whether he's gotten away or not. Yeah, we'll go after him then. Yeah. That's all right with you. And Robin's like, okay. <laughs> the next night, the Joker does it again. He takes a much more hands-on approach actually showing up at the scene of the crime. He gasses the police guards, but he doesn't kill them. Fact, fans. And then he murders his next victim with a dart. Mm. So if Batman had actually bothered to show up for this one, he may have actually stopped Jay Wilde being killed. Yeah. I like that he hid in the uh, suit of armour. Yeah, that was quite clever, that. Mm. He was already in the house. 
So I wonder how long he stood there. He's got a lot of patience. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's worth it for the funny. Yeah. I mean, I presume he was just peeing on the inside, and nobody noticed. Or he had a, he had a colostomy bag or something. <laughs> just in case he needed a wee. Or he just didn't drink yeah. for a couple of hours before he hid himself in the suit of armour. I do like that he was he was already in the room. That was quite cute. The mob, feeling duped, decide to kill the Joker for the diamonds. And then it's here, with two men already dead, that Batman decides to get involved. So, let's get this straight. The Batman doesn't give a rat's ass that two prominent members of society have been killed and their expensive gems stolen. But when a mobster's threatened, that's when Batman gets involved. What can he do when his grapevine's dead? Do you think he's he's on the mob payroll? Who's who's Matches Malone going to talk to now? That's a good point. They all do look like Matches Malone. Yeah. All the mob men. To be fair, if Batman does this, he doesn't actually have to do any detective work. Because yeah. the Joker's announced where he's going to be. So Batman could just go, well, I don't have to bother now. I can just show up there and the Joker will be there. Problem solved. But the time wasn't right yet. No, but the time was not right yet. He does go after great Brute Nelson here. Is Brute Nelson his real name? Because with a name like Brute Nelson, he could have only really been a mobster or a boxer. Yeah. They were the two career options open to. You're not going to want to go to see a bank manager that's called Brute Nelson. No. Maybe he was a boxer. And, and In a it, previous life. Yeah. And, and, and he was, sold out. And it was Nelson versus Nelson. Through Nelson versus Murdoch. Yeah. That would have been good. Fucking hell. But, but, nah, never mind. That's where I was going from. I just messed the names up. All right. Fair enough. Okay. Uh... The action in this story is actually really good because nothing the Batman does is really beyond the ken of mortal men. He does nothing vaguely superheroic in this story. He gets involved in fisticuffs and he hangs onto a moving car and he makes a couple of mistakes. He chases the Joker, he clings onto the bumper of the car that the Joker's driving, and then the Joker gets the upper hand, first diving out of the car and allowing it to crash into the river, and then punching Batman and kicking him into the river. This Batman also seems to really like making bad one-liners. Yeah. I wouldn't mind if he was funny like Spider-Man. But he's not particularly, is he? The groaners. Uh, I, I quite... I didn't mind it. Did you know? It's just sign of the times. That the Batman was a wise cracking vigilante. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you're going to roll with him flying around space with salt and pepper aliens... No, see, uh, this was a much more realistic story than that one. Yeah, but... But, no. If you can accept that kind of Batman, I'm sure you can accept a Batman who tells the odd joke. If it's a good joke, but these are all a bit lame, aren't they? Let's be honest. The Joker manages to disguise himself as a police chief. Despite blatantly looking like the Joker. Well, it's like that scene in the 1989 Batman movie, isn't it? Where Michael Nicholson... Michael Nicholson. Jack Nicholson has kicked his first in Pancake. Yeah. So that he passes off as having pink skin. But he's still the Joker. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, we, all we get in way of explanation for this is a line that says, Disguise is one of my many accomplishments. And you're like, really? Okay, fair enough. He breaks into the home after announcing he's going to kill him for sending him to jail. I like that because this implies this isn't the Joker's first appearance. This yeah. isn't his first rodeo, isn't it? Like most comics of the era, Origins, if he even bothered with them, were dispatched quickly. And this was just another story. Whilst the Batman's never met the Joker before, he is actually well known to the police. Mm. It does beg the question why the Batman's never heard of him. I mean, he's not exactly inconspicuous. 
maybe he kept it on the download, or he was he was buggering up with Keystone Sitter. Or you could always retcon it that this is the Joker's first appearance. Judge Drake sent down the guy who was the Red Hood. Yeah. Because they never actually specify that, do they? Mm. So this could tie into the, the Red Hood backstory. Yeah. And this is the Joker's first appearance. Was it planned from the start to have him as the Red Hood? No, because the Red Hood only comes around 11 years later. Right. Think about your history of comics. Was anything planned no. back then? They just made it up as they went along, didn't they? Uh, the story, which was going along really well up until this point, just goes off the rails a little bit here. With, coincidentally, I think, the introduction of Robin. Yeah. It was doing fine <laughs> until the short-ass punk in the green pixie boots shows up. Don't know why loads of people like him. He just gets in the way. I like Dick Grayson. Yeah. But this Robin's a little bit cack, isn't he? This I is mean, Dick Grayson. You know, no, you know what I mean. I like Dick Grayson as Nightwing and yeah, teenage yeah. Robin. He is, he's a liability here. <laughs> Let's be honest. He really is. Batman's left Robin at home for the majority of this story, wisely, in my opinion. And then he suddenly decides him to just he suddenly decides to just bring him along for no reason at the back end of the issue, other than somebody's gone, uh, should Robin not be in this story? And they've gone, Oh, better out him. And he ends up just being captured by the Joker. Because Robin cocks it up. Because that's what yeah. Robin does. Now that's fine, that's all well and good. It adds drama and makes it personal to the Batman. However, how Batman tracks the Joker Luckily, is either... Ba- Batman is an overprotective yeah. parent. And it's, well, he endangers his child here, doesn't he? <laughs> you were a colourful costume kid as we creep around <laughs> at night looking for bad guys. I'll be over here in the shadows. It's alright, you be the bait. I mean... <laughs> yes, because Batman is a you master... You be the detective. A master bait. Um, yes. So anyway, Robin cocks it up. He gets knocked on the head. And Batman tracks him down through a very convenient way. Mm. or some incredible foresight Batman carries with him an infrared torch in his utility belt which is fine he's got lots of things in his utility belt I've got no problem with that and having covered Robin's boots previously with a liquid the torch allows him to track Robin's footprints now that kind of implies Batman knows Robin is a liability he does he just doesn't want to say that or like you say he's using him as bait (laughs) which is the only reason he's brought him into the story at this point because the rest of it he didn't bother with Robin he said to him Dick you stay at home I'm going to go out and have some fun on my own alright you you do your own work you know he really is bait whenever whenever Catwoman or Poison Ivy's out this is Batman on his own Yeah, gee, I wonder why. If there's, if there's that one crook he can't quite catch, so I rub him, rub him, bugger off out there. <laughs> Let's bring the kid out in the bright red and yellow. Put your neon outfit on tonight. <laughs> and in addition to that, I'm going to spray your shoes in something infrared. <laughs> and wear this glow-in-the-dark tiara, boy. <laughs> now get out there, kid. I don't want to. Two more rather convenient moments happen. One, which was the most ridiculous, this was the one I just couldn't get past, the Batman just shucks off the Joker Venom. No explanation, no immunity, no mention that Batman has studied the Venom and made an antitoxin. He's just immune. Doesn't it just say something like his strength or something? No, it just says he he chucks it off. There's no reason given... The Batman's jaw tightens into a ghastly Joker grin, but the Joker is reckoned without the amazing recuperative powers of the yeah, mighty Batman. The recuperative powers. So, recuperative powers. So, he basically has got a healing factor. Yeah. Hasn't he? <laughs> so, for no reason whatsoever, Batman is immune to Joker toxin. Yeah. That was sure you know, was fortunate. His recuperative abilities. Yeah, his recuperative abilities. Mm. That was lucky, wasn't it? <laughs> 
That was a real stroke of luck. Then, after rescuing Robin, the Joker flees and they've got no leads. They've no way of following him. They don't know what he's up to. For the first time in the story, the Joker has not announced what he's going to do next. But Robin just casually mentioned that while the Joker had him tied up in his basement, he mentioned A, who his next victim was going to be, and B, the address. (laughs) And you're like... The Joker likes talking to himself. I know the Joker likes announcing his crimes. Which makes sense, because he's flamboyant and he wants the world to know about it. But there's a difference between going on the radio and announcing what you're going to do and just casually mention it to a kid that you're planning on killing anyway. How is the Batman going to find out about that if you've killed Robin? Maybe he didn't... he never planned to kill Robin. No, no, he's going to inject the Joker venom into Robin at the top of the previous page. Alright, okay. So, he was going to kill him. Maybe Robin will just casually tell a joke about it. No, what it reeked of was, wait a minute, we've not set up the ending. Mm. this story would really have benefited from a second draft because it was really quite tight Mm. up until this final act up until the third act this was really really very good and it just kind of falls apart in the conclusion yeah pretty much I mean all all that being said it was an excellent debut Mm. there are some things that will strike modern fans as odd such as the Joker's apparent fascination with collecting rare and expensive gems. But the story itself, for the first two-thirds, is a nice blend of the pulps, guns, gangs and murder, and gothic horror, the Joker's method of killing. And it's a blend that suits Batman like a well-tailored suit. There's nothing in this story to suggest that the Joker will ultimately become the Batman's arch-enemy. Rather, he's just another in the run of grotesqueries that the Batman has tackled. And this is something I would like to delve into. When exactly did the Joker become Batman's most dangerous foe? I was quite impressed by how much of this made it into the 1989 Batman movie. The Joker's look and costume has practically walked out of the pages of this issue, as did the depiction of the Joker Venom and the Joker covering his face with pancake to make him look human. There are even elements in this story lifted almost directly for Chris Nolan's The Dark Knight, even though the Joker is a completely different construct to the comics. As we've kind of had a little bit of fun with, it falls two bits in the last third. But for the most part, an excellent debut for the Clown Prince of Crime. One of the great myths that seem to have spread up around the Joker, and one that, if my research for this issue is accurate, is that the Joker was killed off in his first appearance and brought back due to popular demand. Well, as we've seen, this isn't the case, as the Joker survives his first appearance to bedevil our hero once again another day. So I thought, alright, maybe he dies in The Joker Returns, the second Joker story from this issue, and that this urban myth has sprung up around the issue rather than the story. So I read that story and learned that, no, the Joker survives that tale as well. In fact, The Joker Returns is a direct sequel to the first story, taking place less than two days later and following the same M.O. The Joker killing people who have wronged him or are in possession of a jewel of some kind. So my curiosity was piqued. Where has this myth come from? Well, the final panels of this second story were re-dialogued after the Joker died, when Kane realised what a good villain the Joker was, and he restructured it so that a doctor just shows up and says, oh, no, he's going to live after all. But as far as the issue itself is concerned, that we, the reader, would have been witness to, the Joker survives. The Joker appears again in Batman issue 2. The Joker meets Catwoman. But in that story, it's Catwoman who is believed to be dead at the end of the issue. The Joker again surviving and being incarcerated. 
He next appears in Detective Comics issue 45, cover dated November 1940, in a story called The Case of the Laughing Death, and it's here that the Joker finally appears to die at the end of the story. He reappears in Batman issue 4, The Case of the Joker's Crime Circus, cover dated Winter 1941. These final two stories seem to cement the idea that the Joker is killed and miraculously survives, and I can only presume that as one of these was his first appearance in Detective Comics, somehow, over time, this has morphed into the Joker's first appearance. Who knows? As with all things Joker, the mystery helps the character. You know, I remember once writing a, a Batman story when I was little about <laughs> the Joker keep seemingly dying and coming back. And I remember it being something like there were loads of different Jokers. You know, like different Red Hoods? Yeah. Only it was different Jokers playing different... So when he died, it was another Joker brought in. Just another actor yeah. playing the job. Oh, just somebody else just throwing that vat of chemicals. Yeah. And I, I, I remember being really happy with that idea, and then I grew up and it was like, it's a bit stupid, really. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> you know, perfectly plausible. Post-Crisis on Infinite Earths, the DC Maxi series designed to streamline and amend DC's convoluted continuity. The Batman and his associated characters ended up being just as convoluted. But with the Joker, this didn't really matter. The success of 1988's Joker graphic novel, The Killing Joke, had cemented in readers' heads the idea that the Joker's past was multiple choice, meaning any and all or none of the above could apply to the Joker's backstory. Perhaps the biggest impact on the non-comics reader's perception of the Joker was Jack Nicholson's bravura performance in Batman. Irrespective of any problems anyone may have with the script, Nicholson almost single-handedly brought the homicidal, maniac, insane version of the Joker into the popular consciousness. And it was these two versions of the Joker that would provide the impetus for this next story. Images first appeared in Legends of the Dark Knight, issue 50, cover dated September 1993. It was written by Denny O'Neill, the man who had returned the comics Joker to his roots after the 1950s and 60s saw him be more of a joke, with art by Brett Blevins. The cover to this cardstock landmark issue was a gorgeous Brian Bolland piece of the Joker looking magnificent, holding up to the reader a cat he has injected with Joker venom. The Batman is a shadowy figure in the background. Bolland is one of the best Joker artists of the late 20th century, and it's always a delight to see him draw the character. I love all the little gold logo and number and stuff on this that's embossed. So you can stroke it. Well, I was just feeling if it was embossed. Yeah, yeah. But it is, so it's very nice. Do you like that cover? Yeah. Are the pencils for this not in that Brian Bolland art of hardcover you've got? They might be. Should I dig it out? You don't have to do it now. We can always have a look at the various different Joker incarnations for another show. Yeah. That may be nice. Because he's done a number of Joker images. I love that. I like how you see him holding the cat up by the scruff of its neck. Yeah, which is how you hold cats, isn't it? I love that the <laughs> cat... you kicking them out, yeah. yeah. I love that the cat is Joker Venom. Mm. Uh, that's really quite cool. And it plays into the story. Yeah, it's a great cover. Nobody draws the Joker better than Bolland at the minute, now that Neil Adams isn't doing much of it anymore. I think it's absolutely fantastic. In an abandoned diner, the Joker is outlaying his plans to small-time mob bosses. The plans seem to involve announcing the deaths of certain high-profile citizens and then offing them, then doing the same to others, offering not to kill them if they cough up the filthy lucre. The mob men think this gag was old 40 years ago, but before discussions can continue, the Batman crashes the party. The mob men are no match for him, and, having never seen the Joker before, the Batman lets him go when he spins some yarn about being a circus clown the mob men kidnapped. 
at the Happy Camper Trailer Park, the Joker talks to his cousin Melvin and asks if he has prepared the chemicals he requires. Melvin says that he has, but that his cousin, who he refers to as Jap before the Joker interrupts him, must now keep his side of the bargain and help Melvin get plastic surgery to fix his hideous face. Melvin has childhood issues stemming from his mother saying he was ugly, something completely devoid of truth, and the Joker promises to help. Melvin is also an idiot savant, a childlike mind in an adult body who is inexplicably gifted at chemistry. The Joker ushers Melvin out of the door and then tries the toxin out on Melvin's cat, who dies slowly with a grin on his face. The Joker then sends a tape to his next victim, saying that he will soon be the late Henry Hate. Whilst the Batman tries to place the voice on the tape, Hate refuses to listen to Gordon and still attends his fundraising dinner. Bruce Wayne also attends, but despite the police protection and screening, Hate drops dead reading his speech. The Batman takes the speech and analyses it, finding a bizarre toxin seeped into the paper. He gets Wayne Industries to analyse it and report back to him with anything suspicious. With the Joker re-teamed with the mob who have made bail, he threatens another man, George Partridge, and again kills the man despite extensive protection. The Batman deduces that Partridge was killed in advance, and, thanks to Wayne Industries researchers, that the chemical composition of the toxin is similar to the work of Melvin Ripon, who disappeared a few weeks ago. Alfred heads towards the Happy Camper trailer park where Melvin had his magazine subscription rerouted, but Bruce spots Melvin at the wheel of a truck driving past, and Alfred pulls off a pretty impressive handbrake turn and pursues the vehicle. Bruce switches to the Batman and drops out of the car on the overpass, landing directly on the truck which also has the Joker in it. Rather than be taken, the Joker deliberately steers the truck off the bridge and into the river. The Gotham City Police Department drag the river finding the Joker's body, but the Batman quickly figures out that it's not the Joker, but Melvin, who finally got the facial reconstruction he so desired. Batman contacts Otto Drexel, the Joker's next victim, and pays him off. Then disguising himself as the Joker's henchman, he watches as the Joker picks up Drexel's payoff money. Joker finds a bug in the suitcase, but it doesn't matter. The Batman is already here. He's also figured out where he heard the voice before, stating the Joker is the Red Hood, a villain from a while ago who fell into chemicals and whose body was never found. The Joker is laid out with one punch. One punch! Later, Bruce arranges for Melvin Rypan to have a decent burial, and both he and Alfred take comfort in the fact that they will never have to worry about the Joker again. Uh, O'Neill's dialogue throughout the entire issue for the Joker is very funny. It's light and crisp, yet dangerous and dark at the same time. I particularly liked the Joker critiquing Batman's fighting technique, which will get paid off at the conclusion of the story when the Batman repeats the Joker's words right back at it. In the second major scene after the Batman lets the Joker go, we're in the trailer park. I have a couple of problems with this scene. If Melvin really is the Joker's cousin, then surely the police or Batman could work out who he is from investigating Melvin's family. Melvin certainly seems to think that the Joker is his real legitimate uncle. However, Melvin is a savant, so it's possible the Joker has made him think he's Melvin's uncle and isn't actually any relation. Secondly, the Joker isn't the chemistry genius here that he was in the earlier iteration of the story. It's possible, though, that now he knows how it's made, the Joker can synthesise Joker Venom himself. 
The Joker is obviously using Melvin for his own ends, so it's not a stretch to suggest that the Joker isn't an actual relation. I'm going to go with that, because I didn't, I didn't like Melvin. I didn't mind Melvin. Uh, but I, I think the story works better if the Joker's just using him. Yeah. And he isn't actually any relation at all. Because if he is, then not only is that a plot hole, but it's also an unlikable plot hole. Yeah, because it's such an easy way of tracking down who the Joker really is, then, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, part of the whole mystique of the character is they don't know who he is. I didn't like the name thing, either. What name? Where he, he knows his name, but the Joker won't let him use it. I didn't well, like he's not well. him anymore. He's the Joker. Yeah, but I didn't like the fact that he someone knows his name. Yeah, well, see, there's a clue that Melvin is actually his yeah. nephew. So... I prefer to interpret it as he's not really. But that doesn't explain how Melvin knows his real name. Unless he told him his name was Jay. Yeah, maybe. Mr. Jay. Possibly. Or, it's entirely possible, if the Joker is masquerading as, as his uncle, and his uncle's name was Jack. Yeah. That's not actually the Joker's name, though. But when he goes to call him Jack, or Jack, as, as far as he gets, the Joker just cuts him off. Because that's not his name. Yeah. We're going a long way around fixing this, this little <laughs> plot hole. But that I prefer to believe he's not really the Joker's nephew. Mm. That's my reading of this. And if you can read The Killing Joke and say that Batman kills the Joker at the end of it, then my interpretation <laughs> of this is just as valid. And that's what I'm going with. Yeah. There's a lovely little moment where Melvin has his magazine redirected, which is just one line of dialogue. He's mentioned he's had his subscription redirected to the trailer park. Mm. That later on in the issue is how Batman finds him. Yeah. Which I actually thought was really cool. Really good bit of deductive reasoning. And set up well. Mm. One line, it wasn't flagged up, it wasn't red flagged, it wasn't signposted. It was, what's this, what have you been reading? And he says, oh I have my subscription redirected to here and then later on that's how Bruce finds the trailer part I thought that was quite clever and the Batman himself instead of being a rather humorless and bland individual is here allowed to have a sense of humour his dealings with Gordon have a lightness to them that was bled out of the character as the 90s wore on and the banter with Alfred is likewise witty and funny I, I liked him his conversation with Gordon in this yeah, his, his relationship with Commissioner Gordon's a lot lighter as well, isn't it? When he asks permission to leave the room. Yeah, after he's getting fed up of Batman just disappearing in midway through the conversation. Mm. And Batman stays long enough and says, Do I have permission to leave? Which was funny. It was Batman having fun, which, you know, we, we kind of seem to have... We seem to be swinging back towards that. Yeah, yeah. But throughout the, the 90s and the 2000s, we kind of lost sight of Batman having fun. Uh Hands up, all those of you reading this issue, who didn't realise the speech in Hate Hand was going to be his downfall. Mm, well, the the giveaway line is, I paid good quality money for this funny speech. Yeah, which he's got in his hand. And you'll cut him a slack here, because they've never dealt with the Joker before. Yeah. But in any future story where he mentions this speech is bought and has been delivered to him, Commissioner Gordon would have snatched it out of his hand. Although by that point it may be too late. Yeah. Unless it's not on the envelope. Because that wouldn't make sense. If it was on the envelope, it would kill the postman. And the Joker doesn't <laughs> want to kill the postman. He only wants I to don't kill know, him. that sounds pretty funny. Yeah, well if he kills the postman, though, he doesn't get to its destination, does it? Every time the postman picks it up. Okay, well maybe, maybe the, the, the venom, the poison on the, on the envelope is slow working. 
Possibly. So, the, so you're saying the postman's dead as well? Yeah. And no one gives a crap about him? Yeah. That's a joke. <laughs> oh, all right. Fair enough. I, I, that's pretty damn funny. I'll, I'll go with that. Uh, Batman removes the speech from the crime scene, contaminating evidence in the process. Mm, that, that smile is really gross. Yeah. The other ones are creepy, but that one's gross. That one's gross. Yeah. It, it's very inspired by Nicholson in the movie, isn't it? Yeah, it reminds me of Predator. Yes, yes, it is a bit Predator-like. Yeah, the mouth. Yeah, do you know I haven't noticed that before? Uh, Alfred mentions that Bruce has an, an eidectic memory, which is trained rather than genetic, and he can't quite place where he's heard the Joker's voice before. I loved that, because I really hate when characters in stories remember all the events of their adventures with perfect recall. Mm. Because let's be honest, the amount of times he's put Firefly away, wouldn't they all just blur into one? Yeah. Eventually. So the fact that he remembers everything perfectly, I like that he couldn't place the Joker's voice. I thought that was really cool. Despite all the snark between Bruce and Alfred, there's a lovely scene on page 19 where Bruce tells Alfred he's going to sit down here in the cave and have a think after he fails to seal, to save Henry Haight's life, Alfred flatly refuses to let him stay down there brooding, saying that that's what he'll be doing rather than thinking and blaming himself for Haight's death, when the only man responsible is the Joker. A Bruce Wayne that listens to reason. Mm. That kind of went away, didn't it? Bruce Wayne listening to reason. He was just obsessed and focused on his mission. Still has. To the point of... Does he... Yeah, he's Carry still... on playing Origins... He is incredibly unlikable. I don't like a Batman that's unlikable. I honestly don't. That that Batman is unlikable. Uh, well, I'll carry on playing that because I do like it. The Joker in it's decent. It's very killing joke inspired, but... Well, isn't everything now? Well, yeah. It's a default setting, isn't it? Page 21, again, Gordon and Batman's banter is light despite the heavy subject matter. Like Michael said, it's the, it's the funny scene where Batman asks permission to leave rather than just pulling a fast fade. I was just laughing at that page. Uh, whilst I like the Batman's deductive reasoning on page 26, it seems to me that the Joker clearly spots the limousine turn after them, and then Batman just appears. It's not a great leap of logic for the Joker to realise the limo and Batman are somehow connected. Whether this would be enough to connect Bruce Wayne to Batman, I don't know, but it's a big enough clue to suggest that Batman was in the limo and he's therefore a man of wealth. Yeah. Do you not think? Because mm. the Joker clearly spots... The limo turn. The limo turn after them, and then Batman appears. The Joker's not dim. No. The Joker would have put something together, though, so was Batman in that limo. That means Batman must be wealthy, unless he's the chauffeur. <laughs> but either way, he is... He's, he, in he's, a, he's Bruce Wayne's private bodyguard. Yeah. God. Yeah, but God. Yeah, so it's perfectly logical that the Joker may have put two and two together he may not have come up with four yeah but he will he'll have got pretty damn close page 30 through 31 are even better in terms of Batman using his brains in page 26 as I mentioned his deductive reasoning and following the trail of the subscription magazine led him to the trailer park here he analyses his own glove which he punched the Joker wearing looking for something that isn't there he tells Alfred to see if the Joker was wearing makeup which allows him to figure out that the guy in the morgue later who is wearing makeup isn't the Joker it also tells us the audience that the white face green herbs ensemble isn't is real sorry isn't a made up face he doesn't mention this to Commissioner Gordon no does he so he contaminates police evidence 
and frustrates Commissioner Gordon no end. you got to wonder why Gordon puts up with him. Maybe he does it on purpose. He goes around messing the police while solving the crime himself. <laughs> he wants all the credit. He's like Dexter. He solves more crimes than the police department do themselves, but he does it in a way that no one knows he's really doing it. Mm. All right, fair enough. So in that case, officially, how many crimes in Gotham go unsolved? Well... Your thing with that is how many crimes in Gotham get tossed out of court because the Batman arrested him. Yeah. He's not an officer of the law. He doesn't read them the Miranda rights. That's just going to get thrown out of court. No wonder that they all just keep... Arkham's a revolving door. Yeah. So, I mean, we have well, seen well, stories. What do if you work for the law? It's like, come on, Joker, you have the right to remain silent. Yeah. Well, we have seen stories where Batman gathers up a portfolio of evidence yeah. and leaves that for Commissioner Gardner as well, so mm. that he doesn't just get thrown out of court. But certainly in this case, essentially, he's contaminating police records here. And he does it willy-nilly. He doesn't seem at all bothered about doing it. Batman tracks the Joker and lays him out. In contrast to the earlier version, this Joker can in no way be described as a hand-to-hand combatant and is no competition for the Batman. He's actually quite cowardly mm. in the fight scene at the end of this, isn't he? And the ending shows Bruce Wayne's humanity where he, he gives Melvin Rypan a gravestone somewhere. He actually gives him more than a gravestone. He gives him a big crit, doesn't he? Yeah. I'd just give him a little gravestone. <laughs> uh, I mean, what about his parents? Yeah. He obviously has parents. Mm. But Maybe the Joker killed them. But they're, not, but they're not bothered. <laughs> Apparently not. Apparently they, were, they weren't important enough to even mention, were they? Mm-hmm. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this, this retelling of the Joker's beginnings. It is superficially familiar to the earlier story, and many of the story beats are the same. The Joker manages to kill two people, both of which were warned beforehand, although the names are different, before getting to Otto Drexel, whose name is the same for some reason. Both stories feature a car chase into the river and both feature the joke of Venom as the primary killing method. The differences are in the plotting. O'Neill, having the benefit of hindsight, is able to tie his story into the Red Hood origin that was not part of the original, having not been written yet, and there is obviously an absence of Robin. I have to say I prefer the Joker being a chemist, as Melvin being the chemist implies the Joker can't manufacture his own toxin now that Melvin is dead, although we've offered a no-prize explanation. This version has larger slices of the action for Gordon and Batman's deductive abilities, which were not a consideration in the earlier tale. Alfred is present and correct here with his legendary dry wit, whereas he was also absent in the original, and perhaps most satisfying, Bruce is able to spar and be just as sarcastic back at Alfred, a much-preferred character trait than Alfred being a constant snark and Bruce just ignoring him. The art isn't really to my taste, it's not bad. But there is something I just don't like about Blevins' art. I find it quite ugly and unpleasant and not really suited to this kind of story. Although, to be fair, his depictions of people dead by Joker Venom is suitably horrific. The only misstep for me is the inclusion of the name Jack for the Joker, although it's never actually outright said, and the name Rypan, which is clearly Napier backwards. With the exception of being called Jack in Batman Confidential issues 7 through 12, Lovers and Madmen, 2007, and the short story On a Beautiful Summer's Day He Was by Robert McCammon, and published in the Further Adventures of the Joker paperback, DC wisely avoided Burton's unnecessary addition to the Joker myth. So the name in this is implied to be Jack? Yes. Ah. 
Because he says Ja and Rypan is Napier backwards. I, I assumed it was J. Well, he says J-A, doesn't he? He gets as far as J-A. No, I, I presumed it was J-A-Y because oh, right. Mr. J. Oh, right, okay. Well, actually, that works. Yeah. That totally works as well. That works better, <laughs> to be honest with you. But, yeah, so the, he's obviously tipping his hat, though, to, to Jack Napier. As this was a 50th anniversary issue, DC provided some pin-ups by Jim Lee. What do you think of that one? Uh, I like that one. It's very Frank Miller, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. <coughs> and it's kind of a pose that Jim Lee's done many, many times before. And it's not quite Jim Lee. It's more Miller than Lee. Yes, it's a lot more Frank Miller than Lee. How would shaking? Not very shaking. No, it's not at all, is it? It's not bad. No, I, I like it. It's, uh, it's all right. Phil Winslade, which mm-hmm. is um, the bat signal shining over Thomas and Martha's gravestone. Not a big fan. It's all right. It's very detailed. Yeah, yeah. Not really a Batman poster. Kevin Maguire... Which is only really recognisable as Kevin Maguire because of all the faces in the background. Mm. And then Batman's just this big shadowy figure in the middle of it. I would have preferred just lots of faces. I, I, I like the Batman. Do you? Yeah. Alright, fair enough. Uh, P. Craig Russell, being, uh, has he been kidnapped by Poison Ivy there or by Clayface? It looks book. like a plant, so we're going to go back it's, it's all right. Poison it's, Ivy. It's yeah. not Russell at his best. Ed Hannigan and Ed Beatty of Batman driving a police motorcycle with bats surrounding him. Is he being pursued by the police, though, do you think? Yeah, you can see them. Cause, so that kind of could have inspired Batman Begins, or Dark Knight, or whatever. Yeah. Bob Wyasek and Walt Simonson did the Joker holding a place, playing Ace of Spades playing card that the Batman is sinking into. It's all right. I like the Joker. Yeah, the Joker's okay. Uh, who's next one? Sandy Plunkett has got Batman just standing in a Quite forest. Nice. It'd make a nice DC Direct statue. Yeah, it's... It's, I don't know what he's doing, but you know it's okay. Uh, Tim Bradsheets, Tim Bradstreet, sorry, which I don't like at all. I don't like it. I don't at all. like this. Just Batman standing there clenching his fists. I don't like Tim Bradstreet though, but that does look really bad. Yeah, that's that's not very good at all. I like his Punisher covers, but you know, um, Brian Stelfreeze, who did some excellent painted covers on Shadow of the Bat, but here has just got Batman fighting. Who are they? They look very familiar, and now I'm lost to Ventriloquist. It does look, yeah, because he's got a sock puppet on. Yeah, Ventriloquist and Amygdala, I don't know, could be, big thug. Brian Schultz and Al Williamson have got Batman descending the, the steps of the Batcave in past the Godzilla, or the dinosaur, I suppose. I like that one. Kevin Nolan has got Catwoman having Batman chained up, and she's kind of stroking him uh, seductively. Robin's on looking. Why Robin looks on. Batman uh, looks like he's got a stirring in his utility that belt. That looks very much like Yannick Paquet. I actually did think it was. It's all in the, the face. Yeah, but That's, it's... That looks a lot like Yannick Paquet. Yeah, it's Kevin Nolan. Catwoman just looks like she's going to pull down his pants at any minute there, doesn't she? Mm. Uh, Mike Kaluta has drawn somebody doing a gargoyle sculpture of Batman. And Mike Zex done a nice little pose that I think ended up being used as a cover, to be honest with you. As this is the actual comic, we also have adverts. Hey. We've not done this for a while, have we? Nightfall, chapter 17 from Batman 499. Which introduces the implausibly spiky gloves. Of death, yes, there is no turning back now. Bruce Wayne starts the search for Chandra and Robin's father. Catwoman manoeuvres around Bane and Batman does whatever it takes to mop up Gotham, even alter his traditional uniform. Robin has begun to fear Batman's crusade, and soon so will Bane. One of Kelly Jones's better covers Yeah. of uh, Batman leaping 
What's, what's, what's he doing? He's leaping over the head of oh, the incapacitated Bruce Wayne. Symbolic cover? The reign of the Superman is upon us. It's Superman Man of Steel number 25. is just a big old cover of Superman's angry looking face. Wasn't that around the time they all had close-ups of No, things? that was much later than that. Right. You're thinking of the... I know what you're thinking of. You're thinking of the month DC's covers were all close-ups of people's face. Yeah. Much later than that. Hawkman. The Knights guys have a new score. He was always good, now he's dangerous by John Ostrander. Suddenly Hawkman's got Wolverine claws. Yeah, that was after Zero... Zero Hour happened at this point. No, no, Zero Hour happens after Red right. and Superman. Okay, so I remember that being the story where he goes back to the planet of Hawkman. Thanagar. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. I don't remember, I don't think I've ever read Hawkeye. Hawkeye. <laughs> Hawkman, apart from a couple of, of stories hither and yon. Uh, that's it, really. I don't think there's any more. Oh, yeah, there's another Reign of the Superman advert, this time for Superman number 8. Uh, the absolutely awesome cover of Cyborg Superman blasting a big hole through the chest of the Eradicator Superman, which is awesome. And it's a great piece of artwork. The letters page of this issue has a great bit where DC now declare that the tale you just read is the official forever and always definitive first meeting between Batman and the Joker. Right. So, just over a decade later, a new definitive <laughs> official forever and ever telling of the first meeting with the Joker and the Batman was told. This time, the man who laughs, obviously taking its inspiration in title from the movie that inspired Kane and Finger, was written by Ed Brubaker with art by Doug Manke. Originally a bookshelf edition published in September 2005, when Brubaker's star was rising, DC republished this along with a few other Brubaker stories in a hardcover edition in 2008. The cover by Manke is a standard shot of the Joker looking at playing cards. As we've mentioned, it's a homage to the splash of Batman issue. Captain James Gordon surveys a gruesome crime scene and wonders what has happened to his city. Numerous bodies have been found in an abandoned factory, all with their faces chalk white and their mouths constricted into a macabre grin. The Batman warns Gordon that this was just practice. Even as they try to puzzle out a riddle the Joker left in blood... On the wall. Later that day, Henry Claridge is threatened on the TV news by a bizarre looking figure with emerald green hair, chalk white skin, and ruby red lips. The press has a field day, naming the clown like figure the Joker and stalking Claridge, who is too much of an ass to go into protective custody. The police nevertheless have SWAT ready, but it's already too late. At the stroke of midnight, Claridge is dead. The same horrific grin on his face. The Batman realises, however, that Claridge was a diversion. The Joker's real target was Williams Medical Facility, home for the criminally insane. The Batman helps out, but wonders how many escaped whilst they watched Claridge. His answer is 16, six of which he manages to round up, but leaving 10 for the Joker's next trick, which turns out is a kill order on J.W. Wilde. As Bruce searches for a connection between Wilde and Claridge, Gordon moves in to protect Wilde. Bruce lets Gordon know that Claridge was killed with a slow-acting poison, so Wilde is checked, but comes up clean. As night falls, Gordon again tries to protect Wilde, but this time the Joker has a full frontal assault, using a police helicopter to announce his arrival. He can't help showing his face, though, but the Batman blows it and the Joker escapes, leaving Wilde's corpse in his wake. The Batman manages to place a tracer on the Joker, but there is no signal back at the cave, so Bruce returns to his other leads, Wilde and Claridge. Both were investors on many different boards, but one in particular stands out, the Ace Chemical Plant, where months ago Batman met the Red Hood. Coincidence? 
Disguised as a reporter, Bruce learns that the chemical plant is about to be shut down, but not before an employee he speaks to, whose skin has chalk white blotches, mentions that it was due to exposure to the disposal tanks. But this is nothing, Bruce learns. Another man splashed some on his arm, causing the hers there to turn green. Bruce leaves when Alfred contacts him, saying his signal is broadcasting. The Batman investigates, finding the tracer on the floor of the survey and planning offices. But what did the Joker want here? And are he and the Red Hood the same man? The Batman learns that sewer maps are missing, tunnels that lead the length and breadth of the city. He also tries to synthesise an antitoxin to the Joker's venom, but his thoughts are interrupted when the Joker appears on TV, saying next he will kill Judge Thomas Lake and Bruce Wayne. With the police stretched thin and Bruce wondering how the Batman can act if Bruce is under police protection, the Joker strikes. Bruce starts convulsing and journeys into the mind of a madman before Alfred can administer the antidote and the Joker's gang opens up with a terribly subtle attack on Judge Lake and Bruce, but Bruce switches to the Batman and stops the gangbangers. His time in Madsville, however, has allowed the Batman to figure it all out. The Joker is after the water supply. The riddle was plain, once he knew what he was looking for. Isn't that the case with all riddles, once you know the answer? The Batman arrives as the Joker is about to pour his venom into the water. The Joker isn't going to comply with the Batman's demands, so the Batman blows up the viaduct. Gotham will have no water for a while, but they'll be alive to complain about it. A brief scuffle takes place where the Batman considers finishing the job and dropping the Joker into the vat of venom, but instead he settles for beating the Joker within an inch of his life. With the Joker incarcerated, Gordon tells Batman none of this was his fault and states that Wayne was so happy to be alive he rebuilt the aqueduct. Gordon also shows the Batman his new toy, the Bat-Signal. Do you know, I'm really, really getting bored of the press naming people now. It was clever when Superman the movie did it. It's now getting a bit boring. The press name everybody now, don't they? Well, someone's got to give them their names. I know, but I'm just... And what's wrong with him just saying, I'm the Joker now? Yeah. What's wrong with him just declaring himself the Joker? No, the press has to name him. Well, the Nolan movies went with that. Yeah, the Nolan movies he names himself, doesn't he? Did he name himself, or did the police name him after the playing cards? I thought he named himself. I can't remember. I well, the last line in Batman Begins was, he's calling himself the he's Joker. He's calling himself the Joker, there you go, so he's uh, named okay. himself. Yes, you're absolutely right. Not content with the more modest body count of the original, or even the 90s retelling, this version opens with the Joker killing ten people. Uh, I honestly don't think any show we have ever done has so completely delineated the difference between comics of yesteryear and the modern age. And when the 90s comic that we've covered is the least excessive, yeah, that's really saying something, isn't it? <laughs> I, I didn't like this beginning bit with all the dead people. Why not? I thought that kind of took away this being the first Joker thing. What, that he's already opened up with a mass slaughter? Yeah, the fact that you, you everyone, the reader and the characters, are aware of prepared for something coming up kind of takes it away from the Joker's murders. No, oh, fair enough. Well, keep that in mind. I think we may be in, in one mind of this one, mm. to be honest with you. Uh... I did find it interesting neither the 90s version nor this flatly contradicted the backstory in Killing Joke or Detective 168. Either is still around with both focusing on the Joker rather than the Red Hood angle. Some nice elements are added here though. The Batman recognises that the Red Hood was different men due to the body language, which is a Killing Joke reference, isn't it? Yeah. 
um, which wasn't in the original story. The Red Hood was the Joker. There wasn't tons of them. Mm. And there's an interesting play on Legends of the Dark Knight where Batman recognises his voice. Yeah. So there was there was elements of both versions of both previous versions of the story were brought into this one. Henry Claridge makes a comeback, as does Jay Wilde and Judge Lake from the nineteen forties version. The Joker's MO is similar as well. Bruce is a lot more into the board playboy act here, and it's played very well, although as we mentioned in our favourite Batman stories coverage, we once again meet another wealthy Gothamite who's corrupt. Yeah. My cliche alert's going off now. We've had two of them in this story. Mm. The press naming the bad guy and a Gotham Gotham wealthy guy who's corrupt. Because Bruce is the only oh, yeah. nice rich guy, isn't he? Mm. There are no other nice rich guys anywhere. Well, in the, the Scott Snyder run, we have the other nice rich guy who turned out to be the main bad guy behind yeah. it all. And in um, War and Crime, the yeah. Paul Dini thing, there was a nice rich guy who was a scumbag. Yeah. It's like Bruce is the only nice rich guy. It gets a bit boring after a while, out of it. The Joker using the Joker Venom on the TV newscaster is an obvious nod to Tim Burton's movie. She's even wearing the same clothes. And this Commissioner Gordon doesn't seem to mind that the Batman contaminates police evidence. In the previous story, he just didn't know that he did it. Yeah. Whereas in this one, he actually knows that he did it, doesn't he? Because mm. he actually says, the strange thing is, I'm glad he's been here. So, this Commissioner Gordon's well aware what Batman's up to. Maybe he's well aware that Batman's more capable as well. Yeah, well, there's also the thing, the Batman's operating very much as a legend within this story. Yeah. So, Gordon doesn't even have to acknowledge his existence in the all, first half. And they are working together yeah. as well. But, this is blown wide open in this story, with the police and the public becoming aware of him during yeah. the course of this investigation because he has no choice does he when the Joker lets all those insane people loose from the asylum yeah. he has to show himself in public to stop them and he even says he's, he's yeah. too public and even then he's blown it it's too public I don't like it uh, I was amused that Gordon's partner was called Murta and I wondered where Riggs was and again much more emphasis is placed on Batman's detective skills although if the Joker makes a big deal about random, why does he leave so many clues as to what he's up to? Yeah. If he hadn't left that poem written in blood at the beginning of the story, Batman wouldn't have figured this out. Even in his... He needed the insanity thing to help him piece all the clues together. Yeah. But without that big clue, the Joker would have got away with this. He's not the Riddler. Yeah. So I, 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 did, I did question that. And... I have to say, the, the ease with which a disguised Batman manages to slip in and out of police headquarters. If I was Commissioner Gordon, that would really piss me off. Well, I, I did like the line of dialogue where he says, The janitor? Who could he be next? <laughs> yeah, next time he's going to be the, the cleaning lady. Uh, Gordon's watch is slow when um, Henry Claridge is about to be killed. Which is a callback to the other issue. Yeah, which is a callback to Legends of the Dark Knight 50, which I thought was quite nice. Uh, but in contrast to the other two versions of the story, it's dumb luck that the Joker kills Wild, mm. isn't it? He bursts in completely unprepared, gets caught in a firefight between the Gotham City Police Department and Batman, and he manages to kill Wild with a glancing blow from a poisoned bullet. It's dumb luck he kills this guy. Yeah, it's not planned like all the other ones are. His other executions were orchestrated much better in the previous two versions of the story. Yeah. I mean, I know the Joker in this one is a lot more random, but 
he's not trying to be random here. He's specifically setting out to kill a specific person. I, I don't know. I think it's trying to do both. Being random and the meticulously planning Joker. But in that case, then, how did he know he was going to succeed? He succeeds here through blind luck. Yeah, but I do like the mixture of it. Say, like, with the the Dark Knight, it is your meticulously planning Joker, which doesn't work. No, because he spends the rest of that movie talking about chaos theory. Yeah. Until you get to the end, when he's meticulously planned his final thing. That's not chaos. You have your really random one, which does work. And I, I do... Like how they're mixing it up with both of them in this one. All right, fair enough. It doesn't it doesn't work, and it does cause for plot holes and inconsistencies. But I yes. like that they're trying. <laughs> well, fair enough. In the forties version, the Joker was after diamonds. In Legends of the Dark Knight, he was after money. So his victims were picked deliberate, deliberately. Why does he pick Bruce Wayne? Money. I mean, it does add a certain level of tension. Is is he not targeting all the rich people? Well. No, he's not. He's targeting them for a reason apart from Bruce. I mean, like, it does add that whole how can he be Batman if he's being watched by the police angle. Hmm. But it didn't feel necessary or needed. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I just felt that that cluttered the story. On the one hand, you're like, if he's only targeting rich people, then yes, he would go after Bruce Wayne. But in none of the other stories was he randomly targeting anyone. And even in this one... He's targeting people for a reason, except Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne's just a random guy that he's targeted. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Bruce once had an investment into Ace Chemicals. Well, I got that he just wanted the police force split. Yeah. It's a split covering two people. Or are they not going with a thing where Ace Chemicals was set up by the Kane family and the Kane and the Wayne families no. were working together? That's New 52. That Is doesn't it? play into this at all. Right, okay. Okay. Are you sure it's New 52? I think it is. Because I suppose it would be pretty gross with a Batman-Batwoman relationship then. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, no, I wasn't a fan of it because it led to this whole scene where Bruce Wayne has this madness thing and we get the, the Bruce Wayne origin flashback which just made me roll my eyes. Yeah, no, it's not New 52 only because yeah. Batwoman lives in the the... Big building with a tree in it. Which oh, right. The, used to live. Yeah, the Wayne penthouse. Yeah. Right. Okay. So anyway, yeah, this flashback scene, yeah. Yeah, we comfortably avoided this in the other versions, didn't we? Mm. A, a Batman origin flashback, because the story wasn't about Batman. It, I can forgive it with it being a graphic novel, and you'd have to, with it being that, um, you need an origin, I guess. Um, all right, fair enough. It, it only takes up a page anyway, I can forgive it. And I suppose you can argue that it leads into the resolution of the story. Yeah. This is how Batman puts it all together. He needs to take that walk on the wild side mm. to piece together the Joker's madness. Is the the implication that the gunman was the Joker? Or the Red Hood? Um, no, I didn't get that. But maybe I wasn't looking for that because I think that's a stupid idea. I was looking for that, but I didn't see how you could have that. I didn't get that the guy who killed the Waynes here was in any way related to the Joker. No. I got that he was just a random muggy, which is which is the version I prefer. No, I, I got that, but I was looking to see if that was the case. With right? This. No, I don't think it was. I think that's just no silly and should never be spoken of yes, again. Yes, it should. It should never be mentioned again. Um, Joker poisoning the water supply, like the origin, is very overdone. Uh, but I did like Batman just blowing up the viaduct. Mm. A very simple solution to the problem. 
boom, problem gone. And the Joker saying Gothamites are going to be really annoyed at you, and Bruce Batman, sorry, quite rightly saying, yeah, but they'll be alive to be annoyed at me. Yeah. So I thought that was quite clever. The end, though, I didn't like the ending at all. Did you not? No, I'd, I'd really... The Batman just ruthlessly punches the Joker into oblivion. A marked contrast to Legends of the Dark Knight, where he wanted to, but he restrained himself, because Batman's all about restraint. I honestly thought Batman was better than this. Is it not just a sign of the times? Well, yes, probably. I mean, the body count certainly is, and the collateral damage is a lot bigger here than it was in the older stories, where all the deaths had a point. The Joker's just killed people here because... It's the 2000s, and supervillains now have to be serial killers. Yeah. That's the only reason for it. But I thought the whole point of Nightfall was to show that our Batman wasn't a simple thug. Well, I'm going to go back to Arkham Origins again. There's a bit where you have to fight the Joker. Right. And what happens is the Joker doesn't do anything. In fact, if you, you have to hit him to carry on with the game. Mm-hmm. So you have to keep punching him. But if you don't do anything, the Joker just stands there dancing. Just mocking you. Yeah, yeah. It's not even part of the story or anything. If you don't hit hit the Joker, which the game wants you to do to progress with the story, he just dances. Right. So you're kind of forced to pound him. Right. See, that was one of my problems with The Dark Knight, was the scene in the middle where Batman just relentlessly pounds on the Joker. Is that in the prison? Yeah. To yeah. me, that's a Batman who's lost control. And that's the Joker winning. Yeah. And Batman would never do that. Batman wouldn't just lose... He certainly wouldn't lose control in front of him. Yeah. He may go off to the Batcave and kick the crap out of um, a punching bag, mm. but he wouldn't lose control in front of the Joker. And I felt the same thing about the end of this. This is a Batman that doesn't have control over himself. Yeah. And a Batman who doesn't have control over himself is just as dangerous. And I, I hated it. I really didn't like the ending to it. I'm, I'm a big fan of Ed Brubaker, and I hold his writing generally and his run on Batman in quite high regard. Which is why I, I was I was actually quite disappointed to find that I thought this was quite unpleasant and very humourless. Mm. For me, the Joker has to be grisly, but he has to be funny. The Joker should make you laugh. In this story, I thought the Joker was the worst kind of companion. He's the guy who just laughs at all his own jokes. In addition, whilst the Gordon-Batman relationship is explored more fully here than in the previous two iterations, Batman and Alfred's relationship has suffered and has become more adversarial. Alfred is the snarky Alfred here, and Batman doesn't really banter with him rather than just ignore him. To me, this undercuts the relationship. If Bruce doesn't pay attention or play along when Alfred is being snarky, why should he play along when Alfred is actually giving him sound advice? Interestingly... It's possible that Brubaker's clued up on this because it's Gordon who tells Batman that this isn't his fault Mm. rather than it being Alfred in the Legends of the Dark Knight version. Personally, I think it makes more sense with Alfred. Yeah. Gordon doesn't have that relationship with him. Or not yet, anyway. No, certainly not this early in his career. I also didn't like the unnecessary embellishments, the joke having to release a, a whole bunch of asylum inmates just seemed to clutter the story unnecessarily. As did, like you mentioned, the OTT body count. I liked the increased emphasis on deduction, and taken on its own merits, the story is structured very well. Although, like I mentioned, I I rolled my eyes at the obligatory origin flashback, but like you said, this may be being picked up by people who aren't as familiar with Batman comics as I am, so, alright, 
will ignore that. It was 2008 anyway. So it may be appealing to people who've just watched The Dark Knight. Yeah. Because did that come out in 2008? Was yeah. That when that was released? So yeah, so it's possible it's, it's people who've just seen that film. And the version of Batman and the Joker in this book lines up much more with the movie than previous comic book versions. Despite this story actually coming out two years prior. I know, but, but the, why they reprinted it probably Could wasn't a mistake. It wasn't yeah. coincidence, was it? Mm. It does line up with that. I mean, Heath Ledger's version of the Joker is no Joker I've ever known, but he matches up with this version yeah. more than any of those versions. So, you know, fair enough. All right. But it does follow the 1940s original more closely than Ledger the Dark Knight did. But it suffers from what the 89 Batman movie suffered from, which is the compulsion to link everything together. And like I said, the ending where the Batman just kicks the living crap out of the Joker was quite distasteful, given Batman is supposed to be the thinking man's hero. It's a serviceable version of the story, if not the definitive one. With this being the definitive one or not, in the recent Death of the Family... Yes. Death um, of the Family. Yeah. Right. Which is my favourite Joker story ever. We should be covering it then. Because it, it's Snyder acknowledging that the Joker's been far too overused recently. Yeah. Um, they do have... The whole point of it is the Joker revisits and reacts um, the first meeting between the two. Right. So he, he goes and kills the son of one of the guys he killed in the first meeting. And they go to the aqueduct and the Joker blows it up this time to stop Batman from blowing it up. Okay. Um, and was he not poisoning the water supply? No, Batman thought that. Right. Because what he did was he reenacted all of his crimes by killing everyone linked to the people he killed when he first met. Right. And because Batman thinks he's going to poison the water, he sends Dick to go blow it up. Right. But the Joker's already rigged it, so when Dick shows up, he blows it up then to right. throw Batman and Dick off. And that is very... See... That seems like it's retelling or bringing in elements from the man who laughs. Yeah. Whilst also getting rid of some elements to make it work um, for the new fifty in the same style as the original. Right. Batman issue one. So basically, he's took all of them except yeah. Legends of the Dark Knight fifty. Yeah. He's took the nineteen forties one and the man who laughs and took elements from both of them to work into the new fifty two. Yeah. So is all that stuff about killing people at midnight not in it? Um. Yeah. No? Right. Yes? Possibly. Kind of. They haven't okay. waiting around. Alright, fair enough. I need to read all that again, because I really did enjoy Death of the Family. It is really good. I didn't bother with the Italians. Couldn't be asked. No, you don't need them. I never read them. I don't feel like I've missed anything. They work well with Night of Owls. Yes. Well, I think I read more of them for Night of Owls. In fact, the, the well, the Night of Owls has this sprawling backstory yeah. that works and in the tie-ins. They do have a very set timeline because even yes oh, I know set. that they have a set timeline whereas, timeline boy whereas the death of the family tie-ins they just hinder the, the main story yeah right okay oh, well I'll, I'll need to read all the Scott Snyder stuff again because it's really good well I'm always intrigued by which stories are considered fair game for retelling and which aren't mm. it's like Batman's origin by Frank Miller was untouched for years until Snyder's currently retelling it again isn't he yeah but that 25 years after year one uh yeah. Something like that, isn't it? Whereas Superman's origin seems to be fur game for anyone with a pen. The Joker and Batman's first encounter seem to be one of those ideas people want to redo over and over, yet neither story touches upon the Red Hood aspect in any great detail. Alan Moore's The Killing Joke being one of those untouchable stories. 
What we have here are three completely different takes on the same idea. And what was fascinating was that they were three completely different comics. The 40s tale, like a lot of stories from that era, was an excellent idea in search of better execution. It was an enjoyable story that was a bleak pulp thriller very much of its time. Legends of the Dark Knight was a 90s do-over, more violent, but also still fun. The dialogue between Bruce and Alfred was funny, the relationships between Batman and Gordon a little lighter, and the Joker had some smart lines. Interestingly, there were no captions in Legends of the Dark Knight, O'Neill telling his tale purely through the use of dialogue. By the mid-noughties, Batman has settled into the grim, hard-boiled narration made popular by Frank Miller and Jeff Loeb, and Brubaker follows in that tradition, with most of the story being told via Bruce and Gordon's internal monologue. Not bad, but different. As to which is my personal favourite, I think I would have to go with the Legend of the Dark Knight version. Man Who Laughs has too many embellishments, too much grim and gritty, and is very humourless. Legends of the Dark Knight, by contrast, has the characters still be the characters. Batman is no less driven, the Joker no less insane, but there is a lightness of touch to O'Neill's version that makes it my preferred take. Do you have a favourite? Batman if you want. Do you like the original? I do. Why? I, I don't know. There's, it's very pure in its way of telling the first encounter between them. Oh, no, all right. I, 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 it's, it's not trying to be dark or trying to be over the top and there's... No but by the nature of when it was created, it's a lot darker than you think it's going to be. Yeah. Like those early Superman and Batman stories were, because they were pulps. Mm. So it was all gangsters and crime and guns and mobsters and stuff. Yeah. I have no problem with Batman number one. I think for its first two thirds, it's really good. It's just that bloody it's, yeah, it's the minute Robin shows up, the story falls to bits. And it's not just because of Robin yeah. that it falls to bits. It's suddenly you've got two or three implausible things happening just in the last third of the story. In Like in a 50s Batman story, you kind of just roll with it. Yeah. But because the first two thirds of that story had been so well done, so well constructed and tightly plotted, the third act just kind of smacks you in the face. Wait a minute, Batman's immune to Joker Venom? Why? Where did that come from? Yeah. And that just takes me out of it, which was a shame. All right. No, fair enough. Good choice. Good, good, good choice. I was very surprised. What did you think of the man who laughs then? I don't know. I really liked it when I first read it. I remembered enjoying it more than when I read it this time. Yeah. I, I found it just too bleak and miserable mm. and like I said the Joker has to be a serial killer now yeah instead of just being slightly wacky well when, now we're in the middle of zero year which has just done the Red Hood story has it? yeah right uh, what they did was they did the Joker, the Joker story yeah killed off the Joker and then went back in time and introduced the Red Hood right because we've had the Red Hoods being peppered throughout since the zero issue haven't we? yeah right. but at no point do they ever make a link between Red Hood being the Joker, except for at the beginning of Death of the Family, where he goes to face chemicals and revisits it. Right. But it doesn't ever actually say, yeah, this guy here, who just fell into the vat of acid, that, that's going to be the Joker. Right. Red Hood's dead. Okay, fair enough. Maybe they'll explain that later, or maybe they're just going to leave it ambiguous. No, it's all there, because at the beginning of Death of Family, he goes to Ace Chemicals, and he's got Harley Quinn to dress up as the Red Hood. Right. But at the end of the Red Hood zero year story. They never actually say, oh, he came back to be the Joker. Right. He's just, Red Hood's dead. I wonder what's going on. Alright, fair enough. 
Of course, the Joker's real origin was finally told in Detective Comics issue 168, cover dated February 1951, in a story called The Man Behind the Red Hood, which we're covering here simply because it's referenced in two of these retellings. Written by Bill Finger with pencils and inks by Lou Sayer and George Rousseau, the story even made the cover of the comic. We dare you to accept the challenge. Can you outguess Batman and Robin and uncover the secret of the Red Hood? Uh, the cover is essentially just the same as the splash page. It's the red hood stood there with Batman and Robin standing around him and question marks everywhere. It's exactly the same as the splash. Uh, I prefer the splash page. I don't see any difference. Robin looks a bit more dynamic on the splash page because he's swinging in instead well, of just... They're not swinging on that one. They're just kind of covering the face. Yeah, they just stood there covering the faces going, No! Put it back on! And the red hood is just on the arms crossed. Where he's and the fact that he's wearing a purple suit... On the cover, yeah, it's kind of on the nose. Whereas on the splash page, he's just wearing a standard blue suit. Love he's wearing a bow tie. Yeah, very classy villain. Also on the splash page, it's worth pointing out the cape seems like it is attached to the red hood. It is in the rest of the story as well, isn't no, it? No, he takes the hood off. Right. If you have a look on the last page, Joker takes the hood off, and the cape's still on his back. But it does have those little. It does have the little hooks. Yeah. So so it don't fall off. Presumably, I would have thought. Uh, the story runs thus. As a favour to the Dean of State University, the Batman starts to take a course in criminology. He swiftly learns his students are a talented bunch, and after a successful semester, he tasks his students with solving a mystery even he never did. Who was the man behind the Red Hood? Ten years ago, a number of daring robberies were committed by a man in a suit and a red metallic hood that covered his head. They came to an end after the Red Hood plummeted into the chemicals behind the Monarch Playing Card Company, and as no body was ever recovered, the Batman has long wondered who he was. I was wondering why toxic chemicals were behind a playing card company, but whatever. Hearing of the reopening of the case, the Red Hood, of course, comes out of retirement and is stupid enough to leave clues behind. Batman and Robin examine these clues, but Robin screws one of them, a strand of her, up, and it turns green. The students deduce that the hood also doubles as a gas mask and diving helmet, so the next night, when the hood refuses to run through a gas chamber, Batman gets to thinking. Next time, the Batman confounds the Red Hood by blinding him, and he is revealed to be the school caretaker. He's not the real Red Hood, though. That's the guy tied up in the shed. The Joker. And thus ends this Scooby-Doo episode of Batman. It was really bad. Well, yeah, we're not giving this full coverage, because to be quite frank, it's just not very good. I didn't like this story when I read it as a kid. I still don't like it. It's dopey. But it's not the kind of dopey that's upset by the fun of other 50s Batman stories, is it? Yeah. It's just full of people spouting exposition and motivation instead of characters acting like real people. But ultimately, I don't like this because it makes no sense. I can buy that the Joker is the Red Hood, but why bother coming out of retirement just because a bunch of college kids are investigating an old cold case? How on earth did a 22-year-old school caretaker overpower the Joker? Why does the Joker not kill this kid for his effrontery? And given the Joker's personality, why is he not happy to admit he's the Red Hood? The whole point of the Joker is he wants people to know he's he done did. this Isn't stuff. Isn't the plot twist? The Joker says, ah, you didn't know it was me. Yeah, but... you. And then Batman says, no, we have the last no. laugh because we knew all along. Yeah, that. that ending really pisses me off. Yeah. Because the Joker's laughing because ah, I managed to pull one 
over on you, Batman and Robin. And Batman's all like, yeah, but no, but yeah, but no, but we knew it no, was you. Because like, cause we found that green hair, right? So you didn't you didn't fool us at all. Uh, he is a primary yeah, school child. And it's, but it doesn't hide the fact the Joker got away with it for ten years, Batman. Despite wearing it was yeah, or not. and they would have still got away with it if not for these meddling kids those, and the Great Dane. Those meddling kids who seem really stupid. Now, why is his heel more impressive yeah. than the rest? Yeah, maybe, no. maybe he's carrying something and leaning on his back. Maybe he's got a limp. No, he's walking backwards to fool the police. Yeah, well, yes. my favourite was um, that they spotted that there was a clue with the cigarettes because the guy uses a cigarette holder because one of them was crimped. Yeah. And you're just like, oh... Well, what gave it away to me was on that panel, you can see a rip in the blind. Maybe he shot through it. Is that not a bit of a giveaway? (laughs) Yeah, do not mention that. We're not interested in that. Uh, Robin, once again, proves his uselessness. Not only contaminating evidence, which thankfully turned out all right, but also breaking his hand on the Red Hood's hood. Yeah. Kel, surprise, Robin. You punch a metal hood, you break your hand. In a story about teaching deduction, mm. I liked this much better when it was done as an episode of Magnum P.I. <laughs> uh, all things considered, I think the original Joker from Batman number one was much better than this. But this story would have probably benefited more from a reinvention. Yeah. Because this just makes no sense. But, you know, the sainted Alan Moore did that in Killing Joke, so no other writer is allowed to tread on that hallowed ground. I'll worship at Alan Moore's feet. I'd say Snyder's messed up with the um, Alan Moore cementing of the Red Hood. Good. It's about time somebody did. Yeah? About somebody time took some of Alan and Moore's stuff and pissed all over it. It's a lot... It's a much better Red Hood story than Killing Joke. Than Killing Joke, yeah. All right. No one's been raped in it yet, so... There's <laughs> so, so there's a plus point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did, what did you think of that? Although I think I know the answer. Um, the, the one we just did? Yeah, I the man with the Red really Hood. It wasn't. It, it wasn't even laughably bad. No, it wasn't even a fun '50s Batman story. Yeah. It was just not very good. You, you know, your toes start hurting from all that cringing. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Next time, dreadful birthday, dear Joker continues as we look at two all-time classic stories over three issues: Laughing Fish. Sign of the Joker and the Joker's five-way revenge. We will also mention briefly the Laughing Fish episode of Batman the Animated Series. Because we watched that, we did. We did. Uh, So we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us. Goodbye. Goodbye.
Yeah. 